Well, hello all and welcome to our weekly survey of Leonard Peikoff's Outstanding Works. And today we have a special one. This was his presentation in which he reviewed the triumphs and tribulations of a talk show host. From 1995 through 1999, Leonard Peikoff hosted a nationally syndicated talk radio show focusing on philosophy and culture. And uh, he did also, and he covered so many, so many interesting issues from a unique perspective. And each and every time he reduced it to philosophical principles, unlike any other, I mean, talk radio was taking over America in the 1990s, you know, especially right wing thinkers, but thinkers across the spectrum were doing important radio shows in the 1990s. And it was becoming a very, very hot thing. Rush Limbaugh came onto the scene. Howard Stern was hot on the scene. Uh, but Peikoff's was an unusual radio show that tried to understand the world from a philosophical perspective. And this talk is really fascinating because he talks about his experiences trying to, as he says, mainline philosophy straight into culture. You know, sort of like Ayn Rand did through novels, get philosophical ideas into the mainstream of the culture, sort of bypassing normal academic route uh, uh, through philosophy. Now, can't but totally bypass that. That's important. But through this, he wanted to, as he says, mainline philosophy straight into the culture. And he had surprising successes and he had surprising failures that I think we can learn from. Yes. Just taking a look at a little technical uh, difficulty here, making sure our video is going through. In the meantime, I will hold up. I have a show and tell for the class here. We remember the old style Impact Magazine and the newsletter right, of the Ayn Rand Institute. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. So we have the announcement in December of 1995. The Leonard Peikoff Show debuts in L.A. Leonard Peikoff began a weekly radio show on Sunday, November 12th. The Leonard Peikoff Show airs live every Sunday. From yeah, those of us in Southern California were kind of spoiled because it broadcast out of L.A. from a pretty big station. So if you're in Southern California, you could probably get it. Uh, but it was syndicated to several other markets. It wasn't a huge, it was never, you know, Rush Limbaugh, but he did have tens of thousands of regular viewers. Um, so he did get onto the map, as it were, for opinion talk shows at the time. Yes, that, and that was interesting to me too, looking this up, because I remembered, wait, wasn't the show called Philosophy Who Needs It? But it did go through an evolution. It started out on that one station in LA. Before he was done, it was syndicated. I forget the number of markets. I know there were four big stations, but the number of listeners. It wasn't it like six markets or something, or I, as I recall. Yeah, yeah. A large number of aggregate listeners. Mm -hmm. uh, he ran the show through 1999. Again, by the end, it had been changed to the name was Philosophy Who Needs It. Yes. Apropos of the philosophy he was talking about. And um, if you think he, about it, it's kind of stunning the success, the degree to the, even the success that he had. He's a philosopher. And he is, as I say, trying to reduce these issues to their philosophical meaning and philosophical principles. And you'd think on the face of it, are, is the radio audience of America, you know, driving to and from work or something or listening to a radio somewhere on the beach? Are they really going to tune in to someone talking philosophy to, to, to them? I think that when you put it in that context, he had remarkable success. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he went on from there. From 2006 to 2007, he went to the Internet and was answering questions through his website. And then from 2007 to 2016, which I didn't realize it was that long, he, he, was, he was doing his podcast. 
So this broadcast experience, these four years in the late 90s were, were uh, the start of that, but it didn't end there. It was interesting to me too. He gave this talk at Lyceum conferences. It's triumphs and tri- I love that he used triumphs and tribulations. Usually the expression is trials and tribulations, but he did have triumphs. And it's fun now because with people like Yaron Brook as the big voice in objectivism, he tells stories or you hear the stories from the individuals of people. Oh, I discovered Ayn Rand through listening to you. I discovered Ayn Rand when I saw you on this television. And that's fun because it reminds me of all the people I've heard who said, oh, yeah, I discovered Ayn Rand because I heard Leonard Peikoff on a radio show in Los Angeles. Or I heard Leonard, I saw him on Politically Incorrect. And he was such an ambassador for the philosophy at that point. Yeah, he appeared on several uh, major national television back in the 20th century, in the days before the Internet. (laughs) People (laughs) depended upon television in those prehistoric times. And he appeared on several important. I mean, he not only did C-SPAN informational stuff, uh, uh, but he would also do the Bill O'Reilly show or the Bill Maher show, Politically Incorrect. He appeared on several important TV shows in this period as well. He uh, began the talk by saying, we gave this title what I've learned from being on the radio. The main thing was to see whether it's possible by being on the radio to merchandise philosophy to a broader audience than normally reads philosophic books or even philosophical novels, whether there's a way to mainline philosophy into the arteries of America (laughs) without going through the educational system. And then he shares his insights from that over the course of the next hour and a half. Given the state and monopolistic, you know, barriers that universities mm-hmm. generally present, you know, for academics with different ideas, like objectivists, it, you know, the idea was bypass academia. Now, at the end of the day, we can't totally bypass academia. That's, you know, where minds are trained. But if we could mainline, the idea he had at the time was if we could mainline, just as Rand did with her novels, straight into American culture, get some philosoph- better philosophic I- ideas working into the mainstream of American thought. The universities won't accept people like Tara Smith or Greg Salmieri or or uh, C. Bradley Thompson, or, or any of the victories that we've made in the universities without at least some cultural penetration as well. Otherwise, their students wouldn't tolerate it and the faculties wouldn't bring it on. So I think there have been these victories, and I've talked about that before. But I'm also interested in, for those of us who are here now in 2022 and carrying on the fight in our small way or in larger ways, the lessons that he learned two years in, because this was right in the middle of his radio career that he gave this talk, but the lessons he learned two years in, I think a lot of these apply to me and you and all of us who are trying to speak out in the name of these ideas. Absolutely. In fact, they apply to everyone, even in their, a lot of this advice is, I think, applicable across the board in any interaction that we have where we're trying to get across an idea or make a substantive point, even a cocktail party conversation. Yes, absolutely. He says one of the tricks of the show was not to give a long diatribe at the beginning, but to have it ready in pieces. And then <laughs> when each caller, you know, you would give them one little bit so that it didn't sound too preachy. And, and try and bring it out from the caller. You yeah, know, he'd have this outline of points pre- that he wanted to present. And then with the appropriate caller, oh, this is the time to put that idea in. So that before, by the time it was all done, he had developed all of his points and then he could have a conclusion. Yes. Yeah, I liked, yeah, I liked his uh, question. Um, 
he asked, uh, it, does morality even matter? Is it, or is it just an obstacle that, you know, you can just not worry about? Does anybody, you know, consider morality to be important in your life? And people would call in and he would kind of weed out those folks who were, total um, cynics. you know, total, total cynics. And then he would find somebody who would say, yes, I think, uh, you know, honesty is a virtue. And then he would ask them, well, why do you think that? And then they would get it, you know, get into more of the reality-based arguments for honesty and um, uh, it would be a springboard for that. So it, it was wonderful that he was able to kind of just on the fly, you know, get people to, you know, to answer. He would weed those, some of those folks out. He would keep some of the others and he would uh, basically bring out the best in those, those, in those people who were talking um, to, to, make, to make some points that, uh, that he wanted to bring out. One of the failures he noted was the direct approach. He had a couple of shows, <laughs> a series of shows called Philosophy Who Needs It, where he took head on, okay, we're going to talk philosophy and the importance of philosophy. That did not work. On the other hand, if he, why do we need morality? You know, Without God, why be moral? You know, the right. Dostoevsky question, right? Yeah. So he just throws that out theoretically and then elicits it, elicits it from the audience and their real world experience. That yeah, then people call in and say, well, you can't, you can't cheat. You can't lie. Yeah, and that would work. It wouldn't be good for me in the long run. Aha! <laughs> that, that would, because he's now inductively, uh, eliciting it from them so that now he can come back and make a principal point that in fact his callers were the ones who gave the substance uh, behind, Very, which I think is t tells us something. It, you know, there's a point he makes that's really good here. When you take on the abstract and the theoretical from the outset, you're going to turn off a good deal of an audience, you know, especially a wide general radio audience. On the other hand, it's not philosophy at all. Some of the most big successes, surprising successes he had were profoundly philosophical questions, uh, you, you know, about perfection, for example, is moral perfection possible? So it's not that philosophic ideas are, don't sell. In fact, if you have something like, what's the meaning of life, right? Those kind of ideas can sell. It depends on how you elicit it, how you go about it. If you go about it, from a fact, especially as a talk show host, he could elicit it from the you know call-in show. He could elicit it from the audience, and that was a much more inductive and much more persuasive, powerful, emotionally real, factually connected way of doing it for the audience. So it's not philosophy as such. People are interested in philosophic ideas. What's the meaning of life? Is perfection possible? Those were big hits big hits. Whereas if he said philosophy, who needs it, you know, abstractly from the outset, yawn, you turn people off already. So it's not philosophy itself, because people are interested in philosophy. It's getting them to see the reality and the importance of philosophy with their own eyes and make the connection with their own experience that I think is the critical lesson here. I think so too. In fact, that's what stood out in all the examples was you're not only letting the caller be an asset to your radio program by leading it through and getting him to say things. And, but more than that, it's, it's, you're showing that the value of these ideas depends on the person you're talking to seeing them firsthand. Right. So it's a first-handed approach rather than a preaching approach that he found most effective. And it stands to reason given the philosophy. 
it was great fun as he goes through because he talks about, he broke the, the talk down into five shows that didn't work and were surprises. He expected them to be successes and they completely, in his words, bombed. And then five shows that were enormously successful that were also surprises. And I just want to pull a couple examples out of here. For example, the very first one he mentions, he says that the uh, first show was a show on Freud. And this was interesting to me because it surprised me that it surprised him. He says, I thought, well, well, gee, Freud is in all the movies and everybody in Los Angeles. He was a local at the beginning. Everybody in Los Angeles is in psychotherapy. So it's show. And it seems that way sometimes. And, and, and those and who are probably should be. Yeah, he expected a lot of callers. He expected a big reaction. And, and there were no callers. There was just nobody. And he talked at the time to a programming director who worked at the station, somebody he had great respect for. He mentions him a couple of times, uh, a gentleman named Dick Sinclair. And Sinclair said to him, well, do not put on a show in which the audience doesn't have in advance a very strong position. It's, it's interesting because it's so easy to say he they should care about this, but they don't. Well, if I were to give something about an intellectual that people don't have a confident grip on, I mean, who who's read Freud? You know, Freud's written influential books, you know, The Interpretation of Dreams, Civilization and Discontents, books that have had a big influence, but it's mostly been in the intellectual world. And the ordinary American doesn't have a strong opinion on Freud. They're not sure about Freud. And if they're not sure about it, they're not going to you know, have an opinion on it or get emotionally worked up about it at all. Uh, so uh, I think he makes a really good point. If it's too detached from someone's, like, we'll take a philosophical idea like the primary secondary distinction. If you were to make a radio show out of that, I doubt you'd get any viewers or callers at all. It depends on how the issue is approached. You could maybe take the same issue and give concrete a concrete instance from a news story that people have a strong opinion on and back into it. But if you were to start out with a technical issue or even an uh, intellectually important writer like Freud, you're just not going to get people's interest. Yes. And that relates to the second example he gives because, and all of us at ARC UK need to bear this in mind. He said, we, have a, we had a couple of shows specifically on philosophy who needs it. And he thought, well, we'll hit him directly with the philosophy. And he said, he learned that you cannot concretize it at that broad a level of abstraction. It's just, it's too broad. It's too abstract. Um, and there's no way to turn that into a radio program. And it just makes me think, well, there's, there's one we need to remember here on the ARC UK. Looking at the view counts of our own shows, we have some shows that skyrocket. And you're like, I didn't think that was going to go. Exactly. And you realize, but it's something people can connect to right away. <laughs> exactly. for, for, for Valentine's Day, he wanted to talk about sex. And <laughs> what uh, could uh, possibly yeah, sell bombed. It totally bombed. And then then one of his uh, friends or producer, somebody in the industry said, You you have to realize that for the most people who are listening to your show, sex is something of the past. Is something of the past. Yeah. Um, and he learned about demographics. Yeah, then, then he learned about demographics. Oh, so yeah. hilarious. Yeah, it's another one Dick Sinclair helped him with. Our 20 and 30 year olds were talking about. These are 60 year olds we're talking about with a different context. Yeah, that's kind of, it was kind of amusing. It was, it was funny <laughs> because we know that we know that 
Leonard Pigoff is a, is a randy old man. Into his seventies, <laughs> he was still talking about how people say these kids these days aren't interested in sex. I'm still interested in sex. <laughs> I don't think he understood just how many people reach yeah. that age and start setting that part of their lives aside. Yeah. So that that was an interesting yeah, anecdote. Did. Dr. Yeah, Peekoff is a personal thing. inspiration to me in that regard. I must say, <laughs> no, he'll, he'll never get to old. Us as well, Leonard yes. Peekoff will never get old. He he may be gone someday, but he'll never get old. Never get old. <sighs> and then the final one that he was baffled about was, and this is another one that hits home with me. If you know the shows I do with Amy on ARC UK, but also our Sunday shows where we talk even more in this kind of big, glowing, touchy-feely way. He did a show called "Life Is Worth Living." Even today, you know, call for optimism or for all the things going wrong there. And he, and he said a thousand things that he had on the list. Can you be positive? We need to, we need, can you be, right. everyone's yeah. calling for optimism. That's what's going to sell. Yes. <laughs> I mean, they, well, they, they would call in, they would complain to him and say, can't you talk about something optimistic? You know, yeah. all these horrible news hey. stories, blah, blah, right. blah. And and then when he does it, nobody calls. Yawn, yawn. <laughs> and he did. He did say that's the one of the five that he didn't have an explanation for. He didn't know why that well, one bombed so I, badly. I have a theory of my own. Why but, that? Uh, oh, uh, because I mean, you'll see it in in what we're doing here at uh, ARC UK. Uh, yeah. Our good works here. Um, and you know, you you've got uh, you know usually when people there's something very emotional and so, something people have like they said. You have to have a firm opinion about it, um, and you you know it has to rally you up, and then you'll have callers kind of thing, right? And so you know I, I've noticed that you know when Yaron Brook talks about something that's you know very positive, he, he laments, you know I I don't have as much any you know as much viewers, and and my theory is that um, you know I think you know for for better or for worse, uh, you know human beings have a at least some people have a tendency towards that the negativity bias uh, and right. and it's uh, the shootings and car crashes that actually get people to watch the television yeah. news or to click onto an internet news site we have yeah. talked about that there's a reason right. why good good news isn't news and the reason is yeah. good. There's right. nothing you have to do about it right it's all right. good at that point now, another example he had was the 10 things wrong with the constitution. And yes. I think the simple explanation there, 10 is just crow busting. Too if he had something like the fatal flaw of the constitution or right. the two yeah. fatal flaws of the constitution, that might've been a, you know, a better sell, but you can't overload people either. Even if you have an interesting controversial topic. No, you're driving down the street and your car listening to him. You're like, oh, the fifth one is interesting, but what was the last four he said? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm, in the middle, I'm lost. Right? <laughs> But that's exactly it. That's exactly now on the bright it. side on the list of ones that went extremely well. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about this before because, of course, we've talked about a picture is not an argument, which went on to become one of his, his great talks at Fort Hall Forum. But it started out as his response to this abortion debate he was going to be involved in, apropos of the news this week. We've managed to avoid that so far during this hour. But he was going to go to this debate. I think, I think everybody knows the story. A little bit before the debate was to happen, the people called him up to get his pictures, his movies, the presentations he was going to use on his side. He's like, well, what do you mean movies? I'm, I'm movies. And we're talking. I thought this was going to be a debate between philosophers. What about where the movies and, come in? <laughs> and they said, well, you know, we're going to have our movies and we'll be showing some movies of what an abortion looks like and pictures of the babies. And, uh, of course. and he pulled out of the debate. 
And he had to talk about it on the radio show because he had publicized it on the radio. And so he did this episode on a picture is not an argument. And he says he actually got a great response to that. People did get it, that people were using pictures in order to emotionally load the discussion so there would be no logical argument. That's it. An argument is a way of bypassing a conceptual, logical argument for your case. It's a way of appealing directly to emotions. It's total subjectivism. And at some level, his audience, his non-objectivist audience, got it. Got it. They understood that they were being emotionally manipulated and that their rational uh, process was being bypassed. And he could really make that point. Um, It's really surprising that there are certain not just ethical and political points, which you think might get attention, right? But purely epistemological points that people were responding to. And that I find utterly fascinating. People Mm -hmm. are hungry for deeper abstract philosophy, but they have to immediately, and in the first instance, see the reality of it, the importance of it, have some idea of it, uh, and then we've got the hook. We can, we can actually then bring those experiences in and help explain those experiences. That's where I think we have, in terms of appealing to a mass audience, our best bet in getting philosophical ideas through. Totally challenging. I mean, because you notice the other talk show hosts of his time, people like Rush Limbaugh and Howard Stern and Dr. Laura Schlesinger, who were the big radio uh, uh, hosts of the 1990s, um, they avoided philosophy in to, to some extent. Uh, they Limbaugh remained political. You know, Dr. Laura had a moral element, but an ultra conservative moral element. And Howard Stern, he was just sort of a decadent emotionalist, um, you know, spouting out whatever would shock his audience that day. Yeah. 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 Now, I have to say, though, I think part of the answer, too, was clever marketing and not just marketing, but the way in which he appealed to the audience saying a picture is not an argument. Anybody, if he had gone before them and said, Today, I'm going to talk about argumentum ad passionis, <laughs> right. the logical fallacy of the appeal to emotion or appeal to, right, exactly. <laughs> they, they wouldn't have gotten the logical fallacy. And, and, for, and Freud as well. Freud. <laughs> and I mentioned, I mentioned that because in the next example he gives, he talks about his show called Dirty Words. Right. And again, this is brilliant because mm. if, what he had, great, because if he'd said anti-concepts or invalid yes. concepts, right. people would have thought, oh, this is a technical issue. But he says dirty words. And by dirty that, words. I mean corruption of language itself. OK, yeah. I've got yeah. you. And again, the people could feel, yes, yeah. you're right. Words yeah. are being manipulate me almost in an Orwellian way or in an anthem like way. And yeah. you could get them at that level. Right. Dirty words is a kind of an expression that snares you in you <laughs> right. dirty words. But, but even, again, even after that, the audience, right? But even after that yeah. bit of titillation, the, the people know what dirty fighting is. Yes. People know what right. dirty tactics are. Right. He was making the point that these anti-concepts aren't just uh, this philosophical abstraction where we oh yeah, that word is right. <laughs> no, this is this is dirty fighting. These yeah. are right. dirty words. Right. And people yeah. could see that extremism is a pretty empty thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Hey, wait a minute. What's the you know a concept like extremism? Yeah. What, what What are you really getting at? Don't you want to be extremely happy, extremely successful? <laughs> you know, <laughs> what's wrong yeah. with extremes as such? And people already had this sense that yeah, wait a minute here, extremism isn't the problem. Violence may be the problem, right? right. <laughs> and right. so, so you make those kind of distinctions and elicit it again from his audience. 
Right. So, so it was very, very, he found it very interesting. And I think it is very interesting how um, just the regular audience will call in and express their, um, their concern um, uh, for defi defining words precisely and speaking precisely and even knowing what the, uh, the etymology of a certain word is or a phrase. Um, so that really surprised him, but you know, of, of course, that's you know, it's it's a wonderful thing to to witness that uh, people are actually value uh, precise word usage. Um, and it, just as an aside, real quick, there's a podcast on right now, um, not right now, but out there in podcast land called "A Way with Words," and it's basically two people who have studied language and. Uh, the etymology of, of words and the, the the backgrounds and the origins of phrases and people call into that show all the time and they have no uh no limit to to the questions that they field and i just find that very interesting very interesting see people do have an interest even in epistemology at a practical real world concrete level and mm -hmm. if you can give them that relevance if you can connect it to what's going on in their personal lives or in politics of the day, then suddenly you've got them. They, they can see the, the relevance and they've got a concrete examples in their own life and they've got an emotional connection to it. And they can see the importance at the end of the day of an abstract idea, even in epistemology. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of questions, I do have to take just a moment to say thank you to our super chatters in the uh, chat on YouTube. You should be in there. You should be asking questions. If you put a few dollars on them, you support ARC UK, assuming, of course, you're already a member by going to aynrandcenter.co.uk and click be a member. Link will be in the uh, chat in just a moment. But thank you. Thank you very much to Kirk Wilcox in for $2. We do appreciate that. Apollo Zeus followed it up with two pounds. Well, that's even a little, we all know about it, the exchange rate. Thank you for that. And finally, Bonnie, with a $5 question, this is absolutely worth the dollars because she asks, or says, I always want to bring things back to volition because that's what I care about. But he shows how that's not an effective way to go. Thanks, Dr. Peikoff. He does show that, but I think he's showing that it can be effective, but he can't just hammer it into people. Yeah, you can't just say, well, that, that's an issue of free will. And you just forget everything you're talking about because I'm going to tell you the way it is. Um, we, better it, again, this is an example, you know, Bonnie, thank you very much. I think that I would use the same principle that we were talking about just a little bit earlier. It depends on your approach. If I were to begin, if I were to say, in defense of free will, or I'm opposed to determinism, uh, you'd turn people off. Okay, that's an abstract philosophical point. I don't, what, huh? Whereas if you were to, we did uh, the psychology of psychologizing uh, uh, earlier uh, this week, where Ayn Rand uh, does this article on the fallacy of either excusing or uh, blaming people based on their alleged psychological diagnosis. Well, there are many concrete examples of that where, say, criminals are being, uh, you know, they're getting all kinds of sympathy and we shouldn't be mean to the criminal because he couldn't really help it. When it comes to a concrete like that, can criminals help it? Should criminals even be punished? People will have strong opinions on that. Yes. And that's the way to back into, you see, the philosophic idea of volition. First, they have to see the concrete relevance of the issue. And then you've got a reason 
to start explaining the more abstract, philosoph deeper philosophical point like volition. Well, you know, these leftists who think it should all be rehabilitation and social work and people shouldn't go to prison, even if they commit violent crimes, um, that's a belief that de of indeterminism. It is, the, it is the doubting of volition that, that underlies all of that. So if you can give a concrete, or probably one that's connected to headlines or current events or something in their personal lives, then you've got the hook. They'll see it. They'll fill in the concretes and the emotional relevance. So I think exactly. it's, it's how you approach the philosophical issue. And, and I always admire, especially in regard to Bonnie, because she's, she's so engaged with the connecting topics between metaphysics and epistemology, the so-called anti-Roman. I don't know anybody who understands volition, free will, and, and the basic choice to focus, the commitment to focus better than she does. So thank you very much for that. In regard to, I have to go back to the membership, because there's one more thing I didn't mention. I usually save this for the end. If you become a member of the Ayn Rand Center UK's YouTube group, mm -hmm. so there's the website, but also YouTube now offers this, there are special benefits you get. You not only get the special icon that shows you're a member, you're supporting ARC UK, but there are some some fun little things like these emojis. And it looks like just today. Icons. Yeah, just just actually within the last 10 minutes. They've added Amy to the list of emojis. <laughs> all right. And, and all right. Robert. And, uh, oh, and yeah. so, so all you need to do is refresh your browser and you'll be able to look, look that up. Or and, just wait till um, next time. But they are there. And that is yet one more reason to sign up on the YouTube site. Yeah, as so well. it's only like $5 a month. Yeah, it's like, it's, you know, it's, just just don't get your, your caramel mocha latte um, for, you know, once a month and you'll be covered. Starbucks, yeah. Yeah, just, just <laughs> don't, right. don't go to Starbucks you know, for this, one time. This Sunday for, uh, you know, regular paid subscribers of uh, Ayn Rand Center UK, we're starting a whole new workshop on Dr. Leonard Peikoff's magnificent revolutionary book on historiography, The Ominous Parallels, which discusses the rise of Nazism and America today and compares the two. It is a brilliant book and we're just starting on Sunday. So if you become a paid subscriber to ARC UK now, you'll be able to participate from the ground floor on uh, our new Sunday workshop on Dr. Peikoff's amazing book, The Ominous Parallels. And I can't recommend that highly enough. If, if you've if you know anything about World War II, the, the millions of people that were killed, but also the impact that that had on communist Russia, Soviet Union, what that meant, how that then infected, the same ideas infected the United States, the universities in the 60s. This is not just a book about World War II or just a book about the philosophy of history, although it is. But it is amazing how it applied. Well, we discussed this a few weeks ago. Find the show that we did on the spirit of the 60s if you want to know, well, but does the ominous parallels have anything to say about life now? It absolutely does. Jim, absolutely. James, these are going to be outstanding sessions and more relevant look forward to. <laughs> more important than ever. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Now, going from World World War II to something a little brighter, the third example, Leonard Beagle. Yes, <laughs> back to this. I love this because we talked about how, well, you can't give people something too abstract. Too abstract can work. And this goes to the Q&A when somebody says, well, what about religion? That works. And he'll answer that. But even before that, he did a show on what's the meaning of life? Mm -hmm. Now, you would think that's broad. Isn't that as broad as all of philosophy? But that's a question people have tackled before. 
So if you ask people, what's the meaning of life? And he found this, the lines light up. And that, that's kind of a great story to hear because, again, that relates to what we do here. Well, I love I the see... example you gave, too. On the one hand, he's got the extremely religious person who said the meaning of life is the next dimension and my life after death, not this life at all. And then you've got the complete materialist on the other side who said, what was her line? Cadillac. Clothes. Yeah, Cadillacs. Clothes, Cadillacs. Except men. Exactly. So you've got a, the two extremes there. One, a totally mystic, intrinsicist view of the meaning of life, and the other, a totally concrete, bound, pragmatic you know, uh, you know, subjectivist view uh, uh, of morality. And very and, California. And very <laughs> California, by the way. But there, you know, you what that does is it provides an opening for an unconventional answer that is more satisfying than either of the, the ideas that are basically coming in from both sides. And again, you can, if you elicit it in concrete terms from uh, the viewers, you say, well, yeah, what gives your life meaning? Your career, your romantic life, what is it that gives your life meaning? And then now we're talking about the concretes that make up your actual life and that it's life that's sort of an end in itself and gives meaning to life. So it's, yes. it, you know, you, you, it's really, it, it isn't the abstraction of the issue. It really is how we, how we approach the issue. Uh, that will either connect or disconnect with people. But again, what's astonishing is that something, a meta-ethical issue like that <laughs> is actually got the lines, you know, the phone lines firing up on his radio show. Very, very instructive. Yes, and useful because if you can get people in, it's either mysticism or materialism, then you can show how a rational philosophy actually gives you access both to higher, what we can also call spiritual or psychological values, as well as concrete values without being mystical or determinist. I love that, love that, love that. And then the fourth example he gives similarly, um, he would do shows on the virtue of selfishness, which is an easy way to get people into the book. But what really sold was he did a show, he just flipped it around. He did a show on the evil of sacrifice. Yep. yep. Now, how many people have the wrong idea of what sacrifice is? How many movies do we see end with a big self-sacrifice at the end as if that's the greatest thing you can do? And Leonard Peikoff does an episode of The Evil of Sacrifice. I think in, in our contemporary world, most people have a grip on the idea that, well, yeah, we have to be selfish sometimes. And some mm -hmm. selfishness, I guess, you know, taking care of myself, if you call that selfishness, wanting happiness, wanting a successful career or successful love life. You know, people have an idea that some selfishness may be okay. A much more powerful attack, a much more direct and emotional attack is when you take on the word sacrifice. Because he had callers who said, any, everything that you, everything that you have to causally pay for in life is a sacrifice. You can't yes. avoid sacrifice. And then you've got the other people, sort of the psychological determinists who say, there's no such thing as sacrifice. People are always doing what they want. You know, psychological uh, 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 egoism. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, we're all egoists under the skin. And it gave, again, the false alternative gave him the perfect opening to give the objectivist answer that resolves both ends of it. Right. transcends the false dichotomy, as it were. Yes, that, that that kind of, I won't say reframing, but but or not even redefining, but simply defining what you mean by sacrifice is so powerful, especially the way Leonard Peikoff talks about it. Yes. And and you can get people, obviously he did get people, he got the response. And you ask the average reasonably psychologically healthy American, well, do you believe in self-determination? 
you know, do, do you believe in self-direction? Do you believe there's so many ways in that they do believe in self-responsibility and great to hear that. The final example he gave a show that was surprising. He did a show on perfection with the title is perfection possible. Now there's a tough one. My absolute favorite, my yes. absolute <laughs> favorite. And his approach to it was brilliant. His approach, approach to it was brilliant. Of course, people are going to, having been trained in this idea that perfection is impossible by these platonic leaning philosophers, right? You know, you know, we're trained. I come into a mathematics class. There's no perfect circle, of course. And of course, you go to an ethics class. Of course, the, the standards of ethics like altruism can never be lived up to. So ethics can't really be. <laughs> so, but what's amazing is that a subject like perfection, he could actually elicit. He'd get the collar on. And then he would say, well, let's talk about your life. Are you doing the best you can here? Mm -hmm. Tell me, well, tell me yeah. what you're doing. Are you, yeah. are you, are you derelict on some important thing you think you should be doing? No, no, I'm not doing no, any of those no, things. No, I'm working hard. I'm, I'm thinking about what I'm doing. I'm trying to improve myself. And Dr. Peacock would say, well, then you are perfect. He would force these reluctant admissions from people. You know, a lot of good people are out there. And so he's forcing these reluctant admissions from people. I'm perfect? <laughs> yeah, not it, doing it anything wrong. A, everything you're doing is right. It was such an excellent um, example of trying to show people the power of contextual thought right that that isn't some sort of like a platonic ideal that you're supposed to that you cannot ever reach um but it's something that actually applies to your life and it's something that you uh, it's a concept of perfect that you can actually use to ask yourself am, am i doing uh what what is good here um you know based on you know, my requirements for life as a human being um, it's, it's contextual to that. Or I think I, as I recall, you know, some of these things that he was talking about, it brought back actually listening to these shows when they first came out, um, which I had, uh, which I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, obviously a vampire. So, you know, I'm not, you know, yeah, you're too age, young to have heard so, that in the late nineties. Um, yeah, I'm too young to have learned. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> so it, it was, I just recall that it was just so, you know, it was so, it was like a deliverance when he was talking with people. They're like, oh, you know, and he did the same thing with morality as well. He said, um, you know, you know, same kind of thing with, with morality. He talked about morality, he talked about the reality basis of it. And, um, and, you know, he asked people, you know, what they thought of themselves and the kinds of things that they do for a living and that they hold down a job, that they're productive, that they're honest, um, and that they value rationality. Um, and, he, and, you know, the kind of responses he would get from his callers were just wonderful to hear because it was, it was like this lightning was this lift, like, oh, you know, we didn't have to take all of it serious, any of it seriously, did we, kind of reaction. And it was such a joy. It was Traditional such a joy. approaches to morality just don't yep. give people what they need. Right. And they're imposing on all kinds of unearned guilt. Religious morality uh, in particular will impose unearned guilt on people. But, you know, even left-wing political idea, ethical values will put all kinds of unearned guilt on people. What's amazing, what's really beautiful to, to watch is Leonard Peikoff sort of delivering the real life, living your life, the psychological impact value of objectivist ethics. Life mm -hmm. is for successful living. It's for enjoying life. It's for, it is for your life. And if someone's imposing on you some kind of unearned guilt because of their twisted view of ethics, reject that. And 
what it does is it actually gets people to realize the importance of morality. Yeah, this idea that I could never be perfect has put me in this constant shame position. Right. And when you can do put those connect those dots like that, you've actually given people a profound new insight and a profound new self-esteem, a profound new ease in enjoying life. We've actually delivered this person, person by person, and you hear him do it on these calls. You're absolutely right, person by person. And you could tell he was touching them, reaching their minds, reaching their souls, and making a difference to them, telling them the importance of ideas in the process. Really a, an amazing skill he had, really. Um, yeah, yeah. Astonishing. It you know, is. you also got all kinds of other good things from this from his show. You you got his sense of humor, which he is one of the cleverest, funniest, wittiest uh, men I've ever known. You get his benevolence. You get his childlike benevolence when you when you listen to these shows. Um, he was in you know he he complained about his technique as a, a talk show host. When he'd get excited, he'd have a high pitched his the pitch of his voice would go up and stuff. And, and <laughs> Andrew Lewis would have to say you know uh, you know tone it down or tone it down, sign, tone it down. modulate you know. Modulate. <laughs> <laughs> because you know being a radio broadcaster or a television broadcaster is a specific skill you know and there's specific aptitudes that go with it like a nice deep low you know nice sounding voice um but the truth is it's remarkable how much success just with the content he had here to get philosophic ideas through and i think he had a, a, a just a friendly enough personality that he really could connect with people and does connect with people and i think that's important too uh, just that human connection with people and their real lives, which is really important. Yeah, and, and not to mention, I, I don't know if you mentioned this earlier, Robert, but he started his show with his piano playing. It was the song, I believe, that he actually wrote, that he performed. And uh, I really wish that I could get the tune in my head now because it was so benevolent and so jaunty. Yeah, as I recall, he told the story that um, it was a piece of music that Ayn Rand remembered from her youth. She could never track it down again. Leonard Peikoff found the sheet music and learned to play well, it. Now, that was Canadian Capers. No, I... that wasn't Canadian no? Capers. Absolutely not. Oh, okay. All right. Yes. All right. Uh, but it's 100-year-old well, Diddlywink music. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, reference yeah. that. Yes, yes. And, and make Nothing, sure that uh, we, we may both be wrong about that, although there's an I, I element of truth piece, in both of those. I thought it was a piece that he wrote himself, but I may be wrong. Leonard uh, but it was Peacock, so No concert pianist, but nothing is more charming than when Leonard Peikoff would sit down at the piano in his home and start yeah. playing. Yes. I, I yes. had that pleasure more than once. And, and I have to go back to the beginning because I know that the stream started late, although it, it will be in the when the show is finished, it will appear for folks who missed the beginning because the streaming started late. But we mentioned that um, one of the great things about reviewing this and Leonard Peikoff's review of the, the, the his four years, even if in the end they decided to wrap up the radio show and there were other ways that he was going to reach people, it didn't turn out to be the way that objectivism was going to save the world, except he did reach countless people and he did hear back from them. And he actually talks about this in the Q&A. Uh, one of the questioners asks, are there things that are positive now, new views that you have about what's happening in people's minds that are on the positive level? And Leonard Peikoff answers in part, he says, you pretty regularly come up with people who say, I listen to your show all the time. I never took any philosophy. 
I've never read any of this stuff, but it makes sense. Uh, I disagree with you on this or that, but, and he says, you know, they, they get hooked and, you know, it's a very satisfying thing. You can actually reach people this way and people come up to, and people would come up to Leonard Peikoff the same way again that they do now with Yaron Brook and say, yeah, I, I never really got into Ayn Rand until I heard your podcast or your radio show or your Q&A online or your appearance on Politically Incorrect or, or Bill O'Reilly back when that was a thing, the biggest thing. So many people were affected by this, and it's hard to know who those people affected and what impacts. All we know is is unquestionably massive, and there are countless people, and we're on the list, who are grateful to Dr. Peikoff for having done that. I've met numerous people who were introduced to objectivism through either Dr. Peikoff's Mm -hmm. radio show, his television appearances, or his podcasts. Uh, Multiple people, numerous people. Uh, we're like that. It's interesting the sorts of things that will hook people. Obviously, Rand as a novelist understood this and knew how to sell philosophy very, very well, concretely in terms of a romantic story. Um, and that is ultra powerful in terms of mainlining uh, philosophic ideas into a culture. Uh, but you know, we're not, I, <laughs> I'm not an artist on the scale of Ayn Rand, but I would like to learn the lessons from Rand and Peikoff on how to penetrate the culture and get through to people with abstract ideas and at least get the idea of the importance of philosophy through to people, the importance of reason, the importance of you know ethics as a, as a topic. If you can get that across to people, you're halfway home. But they've got to see it in, their, in terms of their own concretes in their own lives. They've got to have some real emotional connection to it. Hopefully they've already got a strong opinion about the issue you're going to use to hook them in. But and it's not philosophy, as I say, not, not even abstract philosophy that's keeping, that's turning people off. It's how we approach it. It's how we develop it. If we can develop it from the ground up, from, from a news headline, from a concrete in people's lives at the time up, we're far more likely to get people, get their emotional attention and get them to pay attention to our argument than if we start out with some abstract theoretical approach, you know, start out with metaphysics, existence exists. That's much less likely to have a success, especially with a mass audience. In the Q&A, somebody mentioned, I didn't recognize who it was, um, but he asked, um, has this experience of having this radio show and talking to regular people helped your or informed your understanding of induction? And he said, yes, it's definitely been a factor. It's definitely been a factor for my understanding. And uh, um, and he said, he went on to say that, uh, you know, deductive reasoning is, you know, you cannot use deductive reasoning. <laughs> well, not in the radio's, <laughs> not, radio not in that, program Not format. in that kind of situation. And, um, and that, uh, yeah, he has found it helpful to, to understand induction. Um, it, you know, just by talking with people and trying to and, and understanding how to communicate with them, how to actually uh, teach them these things or engage them or, or get them excited about ideas and concepts and epistemology. And uh, right. um, one, of the, one of the things that uh, that actually Amy Peacock came up with at the time um, was this idea of having a um, a common denominator episode. They called it right. t- tie-in shows. Tie-ins. Right. Yes. And then they would take, you know, two, two ideas, you know, people place things, whatever it is, you know, Beethoven and, um, and metaphysics or, or a current event of some kind taxation and, and Mozart or, um, and they would, <laughs> 
tie those ideas in, um, you know, and, and people found that really fascinating. They, did. Uh, they like yeah. a challenge. That's the other thing. Yep. If, you're, if you throw out a challenge to people, they're going to, oh, well, this is a mystery. This is a puzzle. This is, you know, a Rubik's Cube I want to solve. And I want to impress your audience that I've got the answer. Uh, yes. You know, people's you know, natural feelings when you propose a, a question, a mystery, and, you know, who's going to win, get the right answer. Suddenly you, you stimulate interest that way. Yeah, there are yes. a variety of ways you can do that. You know, um, you know, he said prizes always were. Yes, he did yeah. have prizes and, and mentioning people, people's name on air. Name on that air. was a really exactly. uh, wonderful thing. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Uh, he, you, I, one of the other things that he said and that he's repeatedly stated is that he felt radio was uh, a conceptual mode of communication as opposed to television and video. Yes. In this age of podcasts where we're sort of doing a, you know, this hybrid, it, it's an interesting thing to think to think about. Because if you think about it, you know, it's like John Galt doing his radio broadcast. It was just a voice. Right. And she just describes the voice. So it's pure mind to mind conceptual communication without any visual distraction at all. Whereas if you put something on television uh, or if you give people visuals, um, they expect visuals. They want excite something exciting to see, uh, something interesting to see. And if you don't give them the visuals, um, you know, and again, you're sort of sliding into the picture as an argument sort of thing if you rely too much on visuals. Um, so he found radio to be far superior to uh, any kind of, you know, the idea of even doing any kind of television. Uh, you know, and I have to say, uh, in my own experience, that uh, is also true. We tried to, we did an interview with Dr. Leonard Peikoff back in 1995, 96, uh, for a, a pilot for a talk show, Ideas in Action. We won an industry oh, such award. a good episode. We we won industry awards for doing it and so forth. But the only way we could even get away with it was by going into Dr. Peikoff's home and doing an examination of his art, looking at the art, you know, because he had Frank O'Connor's and Capoletti's and amazing statues. Um, and again, you know, Dr. Peacock played the piano for us. So if you don't have some kind of audio visual material to engage the eyes and to connect people with, it's just never gonna work on television, but also to that extent, it's gonna be distracting. And if I compare it, you know, another experience I had was as a local commentator. When I was a deputy district attorney in San Diego, more than one local news station would have me on to comment on legal, political, historical issues. And uh, so I was somewhat frequently on local news as a commentator on more than one station. Um, you have to talk in teeny little sound, sound bites. You have to grab them immediately with two sentences. You have to make an argument within the space of 30 seconds literally so you've got to pare down what you're saying for these brief things you really need some kind of extensive discussion you can't go too long as we find here with these arc uk uh, uh podcasts that we do if it goes more than an hour obviously you're going to lose people uh, ideally a half hour to 40 minutes right but because that gives you enough time to make a point more than just five minutes. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it's not so long that you're going to do those 10 points against the Constitution, bust their crow and lose interest. I think that's an important lesson, too. Yes, just based on my own experience. That's yes, absolutely. Yeah. And now speaking speaking of time, I'm, uh, we're going to have to wrap just slightly early today. So um, uh, but uh, this is I mean, I just, oh, by the way, here is a, I don't know if we, we've displayed this yet, 
but this is an actual case for the cas cassettes. Um, oh, look, there, there's a couple of cassettes in here, everybody. <laughs> These are cassette tapes. Everybody cassette say tapes. I remember cassette, cassette tapes. tapes. I remember yes, magnetic so tape. Sunny. Wow. Did they record things <laughs> oh, on magnetic this. tape? Back look in look the at the back tape? of it. It's yes, the back of it have. here. Look at how cute is that? We have the good doctor in front of his microphone. <laughs> Edition 15. So again, if you haven't heard this talk, it's worth a listen. You know, sometimes you think, well, trials and triumphs and tribulations. Radio talk show host, yeah, I wasn't listening to that program. I'm not that interested. There's so many insights in here that apply, again, not just to you know those of us on the ARC UK trying to do our presentations, but, uh, oh, we got to answer Bonnie's question too. Um, but also just things that apply to your general life, a talk well worth listening to. I posted the link on my Facebook wall. Additional show notes will appear on there shortly. Bonnie is back in the super chat. Thank you for that. Thank and she you, asks, Bonnie. is Thank ideas you. in action available anywhere? And Currently, that's a great question. We, we're, we're, uh, we've adapted it to disk format. So hopefully oh. sometime shortly it will be available uh, via disc, because that is a great interview, I think. If, if I do say so myself with Dr. Peacock, he gave us hours of his time in his own home. And uh, it was a brutal process just to edit it down to an hour because there was so much good material. But I hope to soon have it out in DVD, at least, format um, and available. We've given uh, uh, Dr. Peacock the permission on YouTube to use any parts of it that he wants, and I understand that they are going to start using parts of that interview uh, for various purposes. So, yeah, hopefully Excellent. soon. Excellent. And, and and by the way, thank you, <clears throat> Apollo and Kirk. I, I think that they they contributed a couple dollars. I don't know if you uh, if we missed them earlier. No, we just, mentioned it, oh, but you thank did. you. Good. That is appreciated. Wanted to be sure. Because um, we got to keep these shows going. Yes. I, I, you know, Amy and I have now been joining James for these for the last month and a half, two months now. It's been quite a while now. And uh, we appreciate everybody in the chat, everybody participating. The view counts have been good, which is great to see as well, because uh, you know, when we think of Leonard Peikoff, it's it's all too easy to say, well, there's OPAR, ominous parallels, the DIM hypothesis, his three big works. And they are, they're the three. But the broad content from Leonard Peikoff, it's, it's kind of just jaw-dropping jaw on the floor when you realize the power of objectivism through induction or understanding objectivism, these long format lecture courses that he gave, but then even these small, which seem like they would be narrow topics like triumphs and tribulations of a talk show host. And yet there's, they're so rich. This is, it's, it's been extraordinary, James, to be involved with you on this. And I am yes. looking forward to the next ones as well. And we're going to continue doing these. Um, we have, Radio shows, podcasts, uh, Dr. Peikoff has given us an embarrassment of riches. And <laughs> as you point out, he discusses everything from the highest end of epistemology, scientific induction, all the way down to the current issues, political and social issues of the day. Uh, really astonishing the scope of his brilliance and the applicability and relevance that objectivism has and will continue to have into the future. Outstanding. Looking Beautiful. forward. Thank you, James. Thank you, everybody. We will see you next Friday. Oh, Take actually, care. no. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Bye. <laughs>